are listening to the Theoed podcast. In our brief talks episodes, you can hear the talks from all of our live events plus additional talks only available virtually. On today's brief talks episode, we welcome Dr. Kristen Dume, professor of history and gender studies and author of Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Her talk is entitled Confronting Our Histories. I'm a history professor. My favorite thing about being a professor is you get to give people assignments. You get to tell them, you need to read this book. Or maybe you need to take a little time, think through your evidence, and then get back to me later. Now, I really miss this ability when I'm on Twitter. Now, Twitter's great. I love it. Uh, it's a fun place, especially for a historian, because I have to say, up until recently, I had only ever written about people who were long dead. I changed things up a little bit for Jesus and John Wayne, and I wrote about people who are very much alive, including some who are on Twitter. <laughs> and so it's this remarkable experience where I don't just get to interact with some of my historical subjects, but uh, you know, I can actually produce my own evidence, <laughs> poke or prod or ask a question, and I've got more evidence to work with. But I never can actually give them the assignments I want to give them, which is, yeah, there's this article I would really like you to read, summarize, and get back to me. It doesn't work that way. One of my favorite assignments that I give is actually not in a history class. There's a class that I teach at Calvin University called Developing a Christian Mind. And its purpose is to introduce first-year students to the Calvin Project, essentially to Calvinism, to the history of Calvinism and the theology. And it's a great class. I get to do all kinds of fun things like teach students about total depravity and original sin and predestination. And the thing is that sometimes students have reported who take this class that it feels a little bit like indoctrination. And that's really not what we're going for. And so I came up with this assignment that I called the Religious Excavation Project. And I asked students, before we talk about any course content, to conduct a religious excavation of their own faith formation. Where did your beliefs come from? Whether those beliefs fall in within traditional religion or outside. And usually they start at the surface. Uh, parents, church, I say dig deeper, dig deeper. Uh, you know, your pastor, where did your pastor go to seminary, your church? Is, is it part of a denomination? Do you know that denomination's history? You say your grandmother was important. What's her faith history? What are her favorite books? Who are her favorite Christian authors? You can go deeper and deeper into this faith history. And it always produces surprises. Invariably, I have one or more students who swear that their church is not part of a denomination. It is Sunshine Community. <laughs> and then they go do a little work and are shocked to discover that, in fact, they're Baptists. <laughs> that happens a lot. And um, <laughs> this is, I love this assignment because it helps us to get to know each other right? And in many ways, it's kind of an equalizer, because all of us have our stories, including the professor. 
And Calvin University, it has a story, right? And so this gives us a little bit of humility, and it helps us to hear each other's stories, to talk across those differences. Now, this is what historians do all the time, whether we're historians of religion or not, right? We find an event or a moment, and we say, how did we get there? And usually the story that we tell is very complicated. This is what I did in Jesus and John Wayne, a history of modern white evangelicalism. How did we get to where we are today? Now, this wasn't the first history of evangelicalism by any stretch, but it was a little different than many of the histories that are out there, primarily because of how I define evangelicalism, or more accurately, how I don't define evangelicalism. You see, most people writing about evangelicalism had defined evangelicalism according to its theology. And so they say evangelicals hold to biblicism, authority of the scriptures, and crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross of Christ, and conversionism, this born-again experience, and then they act out of their faith, evangelism, activism, right? Now, the thing is, when I was researching for my book, this definition didn't really describe what I was seeing very well. It also didn't really mesh with my own experience, because when I would visit evangelical churches, my sense of whether or not I belonged had little to do with that theological rubric. As a woman, as a professional woman, and now this was not a new realization. Talk to any African-American Christian who has spent any time in predominantly white evangelical spaces, and they will have stories to tell. In fact, the survey data backs this up. The vast majority of black Protestants in the United States can check off all those boxes. But the vast majority of those who could check off all those boxes do not identify as evangelical. Because it is very clear to them that there is a whole lot more to being evangelical than checking off those boxes. And so I didn't offer an alternative rubric. I'm a cultural historian, so instead I treated evangelicalism as a cultural and religious movement, a dynamic one, and I see it as a series of networks and alliances, organizations and leaders, and who is in and who is out, and who gets to decide who is in and who is out. And it's a consumer culture in many ways, right? Evangelicals publish so many books, sell millions of these books. There's Christian radio and there's Christian television and Christian music, right? It's a consumer culture. And if we see evangelicalism in this light, then some things become visible that are otherwise invisible if we're just thinking of it as a theology. Things like race and things like gender and things like power. So this was how I was approaching evangelicalism. And for that reason... I saw things somewhat differently than many other people did in the fall of 2016. Maybe you remember fall of 2016, more specifically October 2016, the days after the release of the Access Hollywood tape. Maybe you remember the question of the hour among pundits and among many evangelicals themselves was, how could white evangelicals betray their values and vote for a man like Donald Trump who seem the very antithesis of family values. These are family values evangelicals. This is the moral majority. How could they do this? But as a cultural historian, I knew that that wasn't the right question to ask. 
I knew that if we went back in time, we would see that family values evangelicalism was always about the assertion of white patriarchal authority. Against the backdrop of the Cold War and as part of a backlash against the civil rights movement, particularly in the American South, backlash against feminism, against the anti-war movement, the solution to all of these things was the assertion of white patriarchal authority. And if we kept that at the center of family values politics, a whole lot of other things start to fall into place. And this wasn't a betrayal that we were seeing. In many ways, it was the fulfillment of those values. And so that's what I wrote about in my book. A whole lot of other details there, but you, know, you can read it in your spare time. But what I want to talk about today is how it was received by evangelicals, this book. First of all, let me say I had low expectations. <laughs> the subtitle of the book is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. <laughs> and then there's the chapter titles, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> And there's the introduction, and it's, it's just a lot. Needless today, I did, to say, I did not write this book to woo evangelical readers. I did not actually write the book primarily for evangelical readers, although I hope that some would read it. Right? And so, um, also, just a, a few months before the book released, I got a phone call, and it was from my publisher's lawyer. We were going to do a thorough legal review of the manuscript, which sounded like a great idea to me. And so the first question she had for me was, uh, is there anybody who might want to sue you? <laughs> and the immediate response that came to mind was, is there a limit to how many names I can give you? And so we went from there. We did the full, every sentence, every footnote, carefully vetted. And then she, as we kind of signed off, and she said, congratulations, hope the book does well. Oh, and also, prepare yourself for vicious trolling. So when the book released in the summer of 2020, I braced myself. And it released in a pretty big way, thanks to Steve Inskeep and Morning Edition. It was out there. And so within a couple of days, I started getting letters. Now, people think that I get a lot of hate mail. I do not. Let's keep it that way. Uh, but I don't. So many letters, hundreds, now well over a thousand messages that I received, mostly from evangelicals themselves. And these, these letters are remarkably similar. They start off with, this is the story of my life. And then they provide supporting evidence their life histories, all of these details. Some of them actually have sent me pictures of their bookshelves that have all of the books that I talk about in Jesus and John Wayne right there. Some of them accuse me of somehow stealing and reading their childhood diaries because I describe their life so closely. But then they also say, but I never understood how all these pieces fit together. And it's, these letters are both filled with this intimate familiarity and also shock. And I had to think about, how could this be so familiar and so shocking? And I came to understand that evangelicals have for so long controlled their own narratives. They have written their own histories about themselves. At the professional level, but especially at the popular level, these kind of pseudo-histories. And the thing about these histories is that they are not historically accurate, but evangelicals are always the good guys. And I do mean guys. 
Right? And evangelicals are the heroes of their own stories. Now, if you read Jesus and John Wayne, there are not a lot of heroes in that book. This really came to the fore in my treatment of Billy Graham. Now, I did not grow up in a home that idolized Billy Graham, nor despised him. He just wasn't one of our guys. I didn't really know all that much about him. So what I learned about Billy Graham, I learned from academic histories. I learned that he was not a hero when it came to civil rights. I learned that he was very militaristic, that he condoned uh, atrocities committed against uh, Vietnamese civilians. I saw that he was very deeply politically ambitious. And so this is the Billy Graham that I presented in Jesus and John Wayne. And it was shocking to many evangelical readers. This was not the Billy Graham that they knew and loved. Now, evangelicals are not alone in preferring their own histories and placing themselves as heroes. We all like to be heroes in our own stories. But evangelicals had a unique ability to kind of dominate the market because they created that market. Right? And, and they also were working in this context of kind of us versus them. Right? That we are on God's side, and so be skeptical of those who don't have this access to God's truth secular media, academics, right? Keep them at a distance. And so um, they also had a more positive kind of impulse, which is they're evangelicals. They like to evangelize, right? And so you don't want to make us look bad because you want to draw people in, right? And so they had a lot of motivations to kind of control their own narratives. And now sometimes, especially this us versus them mentality, this idea that we are on God's side, could lead to some pretty vicious backlash against critics of the tradition. Because critics of the tradition were perceived to be not just critics, but they were attacking us. And if they're attacking us and we are on God's side, they are attacking God. They are attacking Christianity. And so sometimes the pushback can get very vicious. And I have experienced this despite a lot of love I get from evangelicals. Some can be ruthless. I've been called a wolf, a false teacher, a destroyer of the church, right? Uh, and the list goes on. <laughs> and many who are offering this critique are doing so thinking that they are righteous, that they are protecting Christianity. Now, I said that there aren't many heroes in Jesus and John Wayne, but there are some. And one of my favorites is a woman by the name of Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel Den Hollander was the first witness in the sexual abuse case against Larry Nassar, Michigan State and USA Gymnastics. But she also took on abuse in evangelical spaces. And there, too, she encountered vicious pushback. Why are you hurting the church? And she had a powerful response in her uh, victim statement. She gave in court. She said, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Jesus only asks for obedience. And what does obedience look like? It looks like telling the truth and pursuing justice. And that is all. Telling the truth and pursuing justice. The thing is, it takes courage to tell the truth. The truth is not always convenient and it is not always comfortable. Sometimes telling the truth will come at a cost. 
You might lose your heroes, and that's not fun. But don't worry, there are other heroes out there if you know where to look. You might lose your job. I know many evangelicals who have lost their jobs because of the truths they are speaking. You might lose your friends, your relationships, right? You might be in a position where you have to confront your own complicity in this history that has done real harm to your neighbors. But I want to suggest that by telling our histories with integrity to ourselves and about ourselves, wherever we find ourselves, that is not going to destroy the witness of the church. Only if you're looking very, very expediently in the short term. And even then, probably not. Other people are looking and they can see what's going on. Right? Long term, telling the truth is absolutely essential to the witness of the church. Telling the truth is also essential to living in a democracy. Right? Because we all come with our own story. And if we tell the truth about our own stories, it will give us some humility. It ought to give us some humility. Right? And maybe some compassion for those whose stories are different from ours, just like in the classroom. Right? We can hear each other's stories in a different way. And that right now is essential for those of us who live in a pluralist society, and it's essential to the health of our democracy. But it's also important for religious communities themselves. Because if we don't tell the truth about what we've done and about who we are, we will not be able to align ourselves with our values, with our core values, with the love and the beauty and the truth that we seek and with the pursuit of justice. We hope you have enjoyed this brief talk. If you have suggestions for future TheoEd brief talks or big ideas episodes, visit our website at theoed.com to submit your suggestions. <laughs>